welcome to the Spark Podcast, a podcast for life science leaders on a course to reach the next frontier in drug discovery. My name is Kristen Stalkup. I am your host of the podcast. Along with our other hosts, Dirk Arts and Andy Lippitz, we invite you to join us in thought-provoking conversations with evolutionary life science leaders about what it takes to spark change and how we can lean in right now. Welcome to the Spark Podcast, where we talk to leaders in the life science industry, talk about all things clinical trials and technology. My name is Andy Lippitz. I'm your host today, and we have with us Michelle Weatherby. Michelle has over 20 years management in the clinical trials world. We're going to talk about a few topics today around how technology can impact clinical trials. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Well, great. Why don't we get started? Would you mind just telling the audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. More than 20 years experience in clinical research, mostly in med device, large company, small company. I'm in the Minneapolis area. So lots of med tech, lots of interventional cardiology, cardiac surgery, and in leadership positions for about the last 15 years. So really thrilled to be here and talk with you about clinical research today. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Just to get started, love to hear about some of your experience and some of your thoughts about using technology in clinical research. Just curious about what some of the major pieces of technology you've been using, not by name, but just sort of what different types of technology you've been using in your work recently and uh, kind of what some of the, the recent trends that you've seen in that area. Yeah. Uh, clearly, we've all seen huge trends and changes in technology, especially in light of COVID. Having had the benefit of working in very small companies, really big companies, I've used small locally developed systems. I've used really big corporate systems that have lots of options. I had the opportunity to use a system that was really homegrown that gave us a lot of advantages in terms of building things like apps that our teams could have on their phones to manage you know, their daily work. I think technology is really dependent on size of team and span of control but also on the size of your studies, right? So if you think about typically in the role that I'm in now, um, we manage studies that are about 30 patients. You don't need a lot of technology to manage a study like that. If you're managing a 2000 patient, multi-center, multinational study, it's a huge difference. But tools like e-consent, you know, right now we're actually emailing links to consents to patients they can read the consent at home. They can take their time with it. This is one of the major things that we've shifted to in clinical research over the last 10 years or so is really giving the patients the time to understand the consent. So that gives them time in the comfort of their own homes to read it, become familiar with it. Patient reported outcomes, kinds of surveys. Again, being able to email those if you've ever been a surgery patient. You're getting those from your doctor all the time. So it's become not just part of clinical research, but part of routine medical care, which makes it just all, all the easier to enroll patients in the study because they're already used to those kinds of tools. That's nice. E-consent and e-pro sounds like picking up a bit. 
I'm really interested to hear, let's just maybe even just hit on both of those. You mentioned one of the benefits to e-consent is just giving the patient a little time ahead of time to absorb the information. I think there's been a lot of discussion about what the the benefits and drawbacks are to e-consent. Is there anything else related to the management of the study that has been a benefit with e-consent? The fantastic thing about e-consent is that you really avoid consent errors, consent mistakes. This is one of the places where you find yourselves in a compliance issue very quickly. And every IRB has a different process. So if your IRB requires patients to initial at the bottom of every page or certain sections, it's really easy to miss those. With e-consent, that goes away. The patient has to hit every button, has to have every signature before they can submit. So you don't have those consent errors. You don't have errors with sites using the wrong version of the consent. Because you launch it electronically and it's the only consent they have access to. I think one of the challenges is that the platforms that are available to provide informed consent to patients vary across the gamut, as you can imagine, right? We have some where we have cute little avatars that tell the patients the story of what it means to be in research and really is an interactive kind of situation versus just here's a link to a document, read it and sign it. I read a comment on LinkedIn earlier this week where the question was posed, are we providing informed consent to inform a patient about their clinical study and their participation, or are we trying to cover the legal legal niceties of consenting a patient? And if so, what happens if we separate those two things? Here's the legal piece that we have to provide you, but here's what you really need to know about your about what's going to happen to you in clinical research. And it, it's such an aha moment yeah. because the, the consent process and consent forms are overwhelming for patients who are typically already upset, nervous, scared because they're being diagnosed with something that they may or may not understand. Yeah, that's interesting. How much do you feel like as it just relates to patient understanding? of what's going on. What's your preference, whether there's interactive media that's put into the informed consent and like how much training you can put into something that is just handed to them versus creating environments where maybe they're at home, but they can, you know, read the document ahead of time, but then speak to someone at the site and ask and ask questions over, over video or something like that. Or maybe the answer is they're both great, but I'm just curious, curious what your thoughts are on that. I think the patient's ability to understand their commitment to research, you can achieve the same understanding with either media, Mm. as long as you present it in a way that focuses on, here's what's going to happen to you, that of focusing on, you're not going to be paid, you will be paid, this is what you owe, this is what we owe, this is the sponsor, this is the item, this is who to contact, but really starting with, this is what it means to be in research. I think there, you know, there've been a lot of unfortunate events in history that have predisposed people to be wary of research and really trying to using the consent process and the process by which you approach a patient for consent as an opportunity to dissuade those fears, right? Really to reassure patients that th- this is it's necessary, but it could also be beneficial. I got an email from somebody that works in the field for us who said, how do I respond when somebody asks me about the corporate involvement in research? And it was an interesting question because clearly it came from a place of mistrust from a clinician. 
and that it's hard to overcome. You know, we saw it even with the COVID vaccines, right? People being mistrustful of the information they were giving and the various ways in which lots of people tried to either convey a safe message or an unsafe message. And that makes people confused and uncomfortable. Yeah, Yeah, it's a good point to just as we're designing this ICF process to just kind of be mindful of the world we're operating in and what people are thinking about. That's really good. Yeah. So there are definitely some some benefits of it. I'm curious, though, the flip side of the coin, as you're trying to administer this stuff, is is there anything that you've run into that maybe people can learn from that that did not go well that we can get better at? Yeah, I think one of the challenges always is how you're delivering that consent. If you're delivering it via email, we're evolving into a, a world where almost everybody has some email address. You can't sign up for anything anymore without an email address. People don't always want to share their email addresses. They're worried about hackers and all kinds of things. Or just um, another thing that's going to fill up their <laughs> inbox, right? Their yeah. inbox, yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has the the email box that I use for real communication, the email box that I use to sign up for everything. Yeah. I mean, it's what Hotmail still exists, right? I mean, it's exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's that technology piece. It's the ability to get an IRB on board. Because some IRBs are not super interested in evolving quite yet, depending upon the geography that you're in. If you're in multiple geographies, all of a sudden now you're translating multiple documents. If you have one of those cute little systems that has an avatar, it probably can't be in English, right? So if you're consenting people in Japan, it has to be in Japanese. So getting someone to be able to translate and validate that translation, record it. Sometimes it's easier to go to the, the least burdensome method. And paper is sometimes just the least burdensome method for consent. Yeah, interesting. Curious about patient-reported outcomes. That's the other, that's the other bit you mentioned. Yeah. I'm going to ask the same question. What's been good? What's been exciting? What could use a little work? Again, you eliminate errors, which in my opinion is the most fantastic thing about using some of these electronic systems is you're able to capture 100% of your data first time because it doesn't accept the data if there's an error. The challenge is if a patient doesn't understand a question and they don't know how to answer it, that means that questionnaire never gets completed. So you have to make sure that your training is really robust in advance. The the great thing about patient-reported outcome measures is that they're standardized. They don't change. So once you've got them loaded into a system or a database that you use, it's easy to use them over and over again. Again, typically sending in an email fashion so patients have to have access to internet. You ever used mobile apps to, to collect EPRA? Expanding, getting more and more common using a smartphone apps to, to deliver. I think sometimes that's that's helpful when the surveys are coming more often. Something that people notice a little more. Uh, number one is things don't get lost if you're getting stuff in the email every day. People see the little red badge show up, you know, and they go, Ooh, I've got a thing to check. But uh, it's easier to keep it front of mind. But uh, I think I think for certain applications that works well. And then certain where you're only asking them a question every six months or so, it's not the best fit. But just curious, we found that, that uh, it can be quite helpful sometimes. Yeah, you know, yeah. one of the other things that we're finding and that that is starting to raise more of a rumble across the clinical research environment is this idea of asking coordinators, hospital staff, physicians to use so many applications. Yes. Right? They have 17 different apps. 
They have 22 different passwords, you know, and, and how do you keep track of it all? Yeah, it's, it's a real challenge. Anything you can do to take some of the workflow steps off of the, the site staff's plate is, is mm-hmm. huge. You know, I know a lot of people, uh, my company included, are, are working, just working on as many things as we can to kind of automate the account setup for the participant, or how do you just quickly get something onto their phone without the site having to sit there and do a bunch of stuff with them? I mean, that, that's the stuff that's just a killer when it's just, you know, we should be focusing on patient care here. We should be focusing on the conversation we're having and not like, ah, have you checked the settings on your app and all this kind of, like, that's just, no, nobody, nobody wants that. Nobody so, wants that. Yeah. I think it's a lot of progress that's been made. And from an ePro perspective, if you're using it for patient reported outcomes, whatever you're using it for, anytime that a patient has to self-provide data, diary data, anything, if you're not getting it in a timely manner, when it's coming electronically, it's really easy to send a reminder. Yeah. Right. I mean, that is one of the huge benefits is that you're not waiting for someone else to do the data entry and just assuming that that's why the data isn't entered yet because it's on a piece of paper on someone's desk. Now you know that the patient was supposed to have done the entry and it's not happening. Reminder, reminder, reminder. So you're getting that in a timely manner. That's great. I want to move on to uh, to a second topic here. Sure. And that is how do we engage a broader population in, in clinical trials? I mean, I know something a lot of people have been thinking about and it was kind of a big part of the decentralized trials movement, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. I know you've got a focus, especially on on medical device trials. So, From a medical device perspective, it can actually be much more difficult to engage patients in decentralized trials because either they need to go have a device, you know, measured, calibrated, implanted. There's all those challenges, but when we think about decentralized trials and really trying to enroll a diverse patient population, I think we have two challenges. One is trying to access patients where they seek care, right? If we're reaching out to specialty clinics, if we need a specially trained physician, a cardiologist, orthopedic surgeon, whoever that is, how do we make sure that we're engaging a diverse patient population to seek out that care, right? That's one of the, that's probably one of our biggest challenges. You know, we want, we have this really strong desire to enroll a broader population, but sometimes the people that we're looking for aren't seeking care through a specialist. They're seeking their primary care through an urgent care or community clinic or an emergency room. And that poses a challenge just in, in enrolling a broader population. But then when we we start to talk about decentralized clinical trials, now you need ready access to certain kinds of technology. I can remember 10, 15 years ago when we used to talk about how would we reach a patient via the internet and reminding people that that's really not an issue anymore. That even our octogenarian patients, they have the internet. They they have a cell phone, right? They're, They're FaceTiming with their grandkids. It's not such a challenge anymore, but if you're getting into a poorer population or a population that's more rural, where they may not have always ready access to the internet, you know, I'm in Minnesota. We talk about going up north to the lake and finding that place where there's no cell access just to get away, right? And that's where some people live, where the cellular service isn't always 
readily available. We know through COVID how much of a challenge Zoom meetings can be when all of a sudden the system's overwhelmed and everybody's on the internet and screens are freezing. And But when we ask patients from a decentralized perspective to have a specific phone or a specific app or a specific you know, health watch or something that they wear on their wrist, how do we make sure that patients have access to those things to participate in decentralized clinical trials? I've started to use the phrase, meet them where they are with our sales team, with my peers, right? How do we meet patients where they are? And one of the phrases that I heard last week was this idea of frontier sites. And I had never heard it before. It's a term being used by another company that does a lot in the technology world and clinical research. Putting up a site at a CVS, where maybe they're not actually doing the research, but they're responsible for distributing the drug or collecting the blood pressure and making it easier for patients to participate. You know, we think about a patient who wants to participate in research, but maybe they're a hundred miles from a big medical institution and they're prescribed a device, they're approached when they're in there for a big procedure, a big surgery, and they know that it's impossible to get back and forth for routine care. Okay, well, we can provide you care where you are. We can do the routine follow-ups where you are. You don't need to come back here except maybe one visit. And how do we set up studies to make those kinds of decentralized options available to our patients? Yeah, that's great. And a lot of this too is we're unlikely to ever be able to provide access to trials to every single person, right? But what you guys are describing is how do we just make it easier, make it possible for more people to to, to be able to get in and, and then once they're in, make it less burdensome. I think that's like right. the big, that's the big thing, right? That, so yeah, that, that's great. I think one of the things you mentioned though, that's interesting is populations of people who aren't initially going to see specialists. And what specific things are you guys thinking about to make the trials more accessible upfront? Just make them aware and help make it an option to actually help people. Well, we don't, we don't would help people, right, Andy? You know, people yeah. weigh their options, right? Yeah. There's standard of care. And then in many cases, in some cases, the trial is actually better for them than what's out there, right? Like, and then that's all I mean. In those yeah. cases, how do we make sure it gets to the right people? I think that's probably one of our biggest challenges right now is trying to put forward tools for our physician partners to really create more of a community outreach, to disseminate information across their practices. I think physician practice is very much like any other big company job. You know, you're kind of in your silo or your little bubble Mm -hmm. and there's so much work to do and the burden is so heavy that it's really hard to just disseminate that information. I do think that we have to figure out ways to build trust with the community in general. I think that is probably the foundation of broadening our research reach. If we can build more trust with our patients, with the general population, with the community, then if they if they have a condition, they have their diagnosed with something, they may be more likely to seek out a research opportunity instead of feeling like these people are going to use me for their research changing people's vision to, I can be part of something groundbreaking, right? I could get the best newest device available if I can find it. I think our oncology patients have developed an incredible, um, they've developed an incredible network of clinical research. 
And those are probably the patients that are the, the most likely to go and seek out research studies, right? Or someone from their family is right away seeking out information. Um, maybe as people seek out WebMD for more of their self-diagnoses, they'll also start to seek out clinical research options. Trust, it's going to be a challenge. Well, that's good though. It's a, it's a definitely an interesting topic. All right. I want to move on to one, one final one that I also find sure. super fascinating and having worked in a lot of large and small companies, I've come across a lot of this and that is risk tolerance and risk aversion. So I just, I wanted to hear from you a little bit about how you deal with risk aversion when you are trying to do things a little differently and when you're trying to kind of implement new clinical trial methodologies, new technology and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's probably one of the reasons that clinical research has been so delayed in adopting, you know, decentralized clinical trials, different systems. And many other things, right? Oh, for sure. And risk tolerance is hard because often risk tolerance is at an organizational level. So it's not even at a functional level. You know, it's, it's the risk tolerance that's put down from the top, you know, it comes from the top down. One of the things that I've done, especially in trying to, let's talk about risk-based monitoring, you know, trying to encourage teams to adopt risk-based monitoring is really talk through the purposes of the monitoring. Why do we monitor in general? What is the purpose of that? Is it, is it really to make sure that every data point is 100% 100% correct? Or is it to make sure that studies are, are conducted in accordance with regulations, the protocol, that we are appropriately managing patient safety? And when you start to unpack the reasons why we do something and the reasons why we're afraid, you know, because often an intolerance for risk is, a, is equated with letting go, right? I'm, I'm losing control. And often what we're trying to do is give a different way of having more control or more oversight and the ability to respond faster. So one of the things that I try to do a lot with my teams, with my leaders, with people that I work for is talk about how the change actually reduces risk or what is really the risk that we're assuming by making that decision. So you're worried that we're going to, you know, that we're going to give up control over this but we have signals that would tell us if something has gone awry and here's how we would measure that. There are some organizations that won't adopt a more risk reward kind of um, philosophy, but it's just tougher, right? Like from organization to organization is kind of how things are set up. And one of the things I found really interesting is the risk aversion is completely warranted necessary because we're dealing with such a serious subject and, and there's, you know, patient safety um, is involved. But a lot of what we are talking about trying to change is really like patient safety is not at risk. And a lot of it is is just sort of operational challenges. I don't know if it's just the culture of it just is by nature a conservative like culture because of kind of the the broader uh, topic. It's been just kind of interesting trying to navigate it. But how have you found that it has changed from being at very large companies to, to smaller companies and just kind of across the spectrum where you've worked? Again, it's really dependent on leadership, I think more than company size. Mm-hmm. And it depends on mm-hmm. exactly what you talked about, what you're studying. If you're studying something that's 
an implantable cardiac device versus a Band-Aid, right? So that may be part of what feeds your tolerance for risk. It's, It's also based on experience and, you know, past experience. So if you've been in a situation where you've taken a risk and it has really turned out badly. Mm-hmm. We have those bad experiences really unpacking why it went badly and what could we have done to change that, but also really putting strong foundation in place to accept the risk. I think that's a huge thing. Yeah. Because, because you have signals that will tell you that you need to pay attention, right? We know that there are entire platforms of software based specifically on alerting you to uh, an outlier, a data outlier, an outlier yeah. process. And there are ways to do that without investing in really expensive software programs. Um, but really explaining and helping people to understand, here's how we're going to mitigate or control for that risk. And here's how why we think it'll work. But then really communicating openly about how that risk mitigation plan is working and not being afraid to say this is a miss, but catching it quick enough that you can, you know, course correct. I, and I just, I think that's the only way you're going to change culture within an organization to be more accepting of higher risk, depending upon what you're proposing exactly. Very good. I think we are about out of time here. We got another minute or two. If there's anything else you wanted to, to add. Have you said it all, or is there anything else that you uh, that you wanted to throw out there for the listeners? No, I, I think this has been fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's a great chat. Okay. Thanks for being on. I enjoyed it. Hope everybody listening enjoyed it. Appreciate everybody listening. You can find these podcasts wherever you find podcasts. Appreciate people downloading and hope to have you listen to another one. Thanks, Michelle. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. We hope this episode sparked new ideas and learnings for you today. You're listening to The Spark, your go-to source for powerful ideas about the future of clinical research. This podcast was brought to you by Castor, a leading provider of decentralized and hybrid clinical trial solutions to democratize research. Listen to The Spark on all streaming platforms anytime, anywhere.